Well, we are working our way through the book of Daniel, and, uh, and we uh, know, and we've already talked about how Daniel is in a section of Scripture known as the prophets, the prophetic books. And uh, we've seen Daniel prophesy some in, in these first few chapters, but, uh, but we will see uh, in the second sort of half of the book, Daniel 7 through 12, we'll see really that that whole section is centered on apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, but the first section uh, of Daniel, the first half, chapters 1 through 6, are mainly uh, historical narrative about what happened to him and his friends in their lives. And so this week and next week, we will be wrapping up that section, Daniel 1 through 6. Uh, and this week and next week, we'll be focused on chapter 6, which is the most well-known chapter in the entire book of Daniel. When you hear the name Daniel, uh, most of us, I think, by instinct, immediately think of Daniel in the lion's den. And that's, in fact, what this chapter is about. We will be taking a break over the summer, as we typically do for what we call summer psalms. This year, we'll probably also be covering some Proverbs during the summer, and then beginning in September, when we kind of come back with Sunday school and everything else, when summer ends, we will pick up with the apocalyptic section of Daniel, beginning at Daniel 7. Today, we look at Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to be looking today specifically at verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to follow along as I read, uh, and then keep them open because we'll be looking at different phrases and things in there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible but would like to use one, you can use uh, the Bible in front of you, uh, underneath the, the seat back in front of you, and you'll find it uh, on pages 743 and 744 of that Bible. It says this, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom those satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. 
He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Well, now we are introduced, technically we were introduced to him last chapter in Daniel 5, but we're, we're introduced to a man named Darius, Darius the Mede to be exact. We see in this chapter alone that he is referred to as king 25 times. So this guy, Darius, is known as King Darius. Now, there's a slight problem, and that is that there is no evidence anywhere outside of the Bible that a man named Darius the Mede existed, at least not at this time. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, where we have lots of extra-biblical evidence that he existed. And so, theologically liberal scholars are as they are apt to do all the time to to claim that the Bible is wrong, uh, will simply write it up as a historical inaccuracy, that that the Bible's just wrong at this point, that whoever wrote Daniel didn't know any better, and uh, just wrote about this guy, Darius, who didn't actually exist. And the problem with that kind of conclusion really is, is twofold. First of all, it's wrong because the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and so to claim that Simply, there was just an error made, uh, really, is to contradict what the Bible says about itself. Uh, these guys don't have a problem with that because they don't believe that part of the Bible either. Uh, but the other problem with that is that uh, as archaeologists continue to dig and as they continue to unearth other things and find ancient artifacts and, and documents, the Bible is historically proven more and more to be accurate, not inaccurate. The more is found, the more the Bible is figured correct. We see, for instance, from the last chapter, the king in the previous chapter, the name Belshazzar that that Jeff preached on last Sunday, for for a long time, no text outside of the Bible spoke of him either. And for a long time, he was thought of as just some made-up character or some historical inaccuracy. 
Historians would say, hey, look, there is no Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king prior to the takeover of the Medes and the Persians was not Belshazzar, but a man named Nabonidus, and for which we do have evidence, and, and Jeff brought him up. And yet, no mention is made of Nabonidus, so who is this Belshazzar character? But lo and behold, one day cuneiform cylinders were found that speak of Nabonidus and Belshazzar. In fact, we can find these, uh, these cylinders in the British Museum. I saw them for myself when I went to London years ago. Now, what they talk about is a man who served as king, this man Belshazzar, while Nabonidus, who was the higher king, was away for 10 years, that he placed this man named Belshazzar in charge, but yet under him. And so when we read Daniel, we see that Belshazzar tells Daniel, hey, if you can interpret the writing on the wall, I'll give you all of these things, and you'll be made third in the kingdom, which then confirms everything that we now know about Belshazzar, because he couldn't make him second in the kingdom unless he wanted to give him his own job. And so the Bible is found to be right again. <coughs> these archaeological discoveries happen all the time. King David was thought to be a legend, like King Arthur. Until one day, as Israeli archaeologists were digging, they discovered a plaque that spoke of King David and the house of David, and, and lo and behold, the Bible is considered correct on David as well. So many other things, the Hittites, Hezekiah's tunnel, the pool of Siloam, over and over again, these things are found to be true. So it doesn't bother us that, that Darius the Mede is not anywhere mentioned yet, something may, may be found. But even if it doesn't, there are two real candidates here for Darius the Mede. It still doesn't really mess us up too much. Darius, this man, this king, could be, in fact, the throne name for Cyrus. Cyrus is the well-known king, the, the king that comes in and, and immediately uh, gives the, 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 the rule or the injunction that the Jews could go back to their homeland. We know about Cyrus. Everyone knows about Cyrus. And what we find is that kings oftentimes had throne names. Cyrus, historically, is referred to as the king of the Medes, in which case this would fit. And as Daniel chapter 5, verse 31 says of Darius the Mede, being 62 when he took over, we know historically that Cyrus was about 60 years old when he became king of Babylon. And furthermore, you look down at the very end of our passage, which we're not going to really look at today, Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, you find that, uh, that phrase there, uh, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That word and can be translated, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So, he could very well be Cyrus, and in fact, a lot of this seems to suggest that he is. I mean, for a man to wield the kind of power that he wields, to be able to uh, say and give these rules and laws and that everyone needs to bow down to him. However, there's a possibility as well that it was a, a man named Gubaru who is like Belshazzar. This man named Gubaru was a Mede, and he was, in fact, placed in charge of Babylon. Apparently, Cyrus didn't stick around very long. 
he left and placed a Mede as essentially king in his absence. We do know about this guy. And if that is who this is, if he's Darius the Mede, then it makes sense for Daniel 6.28 be translated as we have it in our ESV. Either way, Daniel is now in service to this man known as Darius the Mede. Now, we're not told how he rose in the ranks to become a high official. We're only told that when he's given this title, one of three guys in charge of all these satraps, that, that he distinguishes himself in that role. But I was, you know, as I was contemplating this, I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting? We know from, again, last text uh, that when Belshazzar became king and the writing was on the wall, Daniel had, it seems, kind of faded into obscurity. Daniel had been right-hand man to Nebuchadnezzar, but by the time Belshazzar is there ruling, uh, he doesn't even know who this guy is. He needs to be reminded of who Daniel, in fact, is and what he did. And so when Belshazzar calls Daniel and he interprets the writing on the wall, what does he say? He says, look, if you interpret this writing, I'll give you a purple robe. I'll give you a gold chain. I will make a proclamation that you are great and I will make you third in the kingdom. And Daniel says, hey, look, just keep your, keep, keep your honors to yourself. I don't need them. I don't want them. Daniel, again, as Jeff mentioned, he probably knew the kingdom was really uh, headed nowhere and he was really there to serve his Lord. But he was given these things anyway, we see. And so perhaps when Darius the Mede finds him, and Daniel is known as this great man wearing a purple robe and, and a gold chain, maybe that alerted Darius that this man is someone I could have on my cabinet. Uh, <coughs> we don't know. I mean, again, that's speculation. But it's interesting to see that perhaps God in his providence uh, created another uh, avenue for Daniel to be given this rank. At any rate, Daniel is placed in charge of satraps. A satrap uh, was a guy that collected and, uh, and gave the king's money, the tribute given to the king. And we see here in this text that political and uh, corruption, theft, happened even back then. And so Daniel is placed in charge of these satraps to hold them accountable so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, things were going fine, I guess, for Daniel, it seems, until Daniel began to distinguish himself. He began to distinguish himself above everyone else. Again, as is typical, Daniel has constantly done this. And when he began to distinguish himself, Scripture tells us that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom which means over the other governors. And apparently it was then that jealousy and envy began to rear its ugly head. In verses 4 and 5, we see that as soon as the other officials caught wind that Daniel might be made prime minister, that he might be made a ruler over them as well, that they began a desperate search to try to make some kind of accusation stick to Daniel something that he does wrong, something that he doesn't do right. They began a desperate search, but Scripture tells us that with regard to the kingdom, they could find no ground for complaint. 
or any fault. Because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Once again, as we have seen all throughout Daniel, we see Daniel again being an ambassador in exile. You see, this statement, with regard to the kingdom, that doesn't mean the kingdom of God. With regard to the kingdom means to the kingdom of Darius. That's what they're talking about. With regard to Daniel's service to the kingdom of Medo-Persia, he was faithful. In other words, with regard to yet another pagan godless leader, Daniel did his job flawlessly. He once again faithfully served this man as a high official under King Darius. Daniel showed up to work on time. He, he never wasted the king's time. He, he wasn't found uh, sitting at his cubicle on social media all day. Daniel worked hard. He did exactly everything that Darius asked him to do. He served so faithfully that despite their best efforts, they could find nothing to get him on. So one of the ways that we as Christians live faithfully as ambassadors, as ambassadors while we are in exile, is to honor and obey and serve faithfully the bosses or the leaders or the teachers or the professors or whomever that God has placed over us while we are in exile. That's one of the ways that we serve as an ambassador. Colossians 3, I quoted this a few sermons ago. I'll quote it again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, to serve Christ well is going to be reflected in our service to our boss. <clears throat> this is important because we need to understand this as Christians. It's important as Christians for us to make, for instance, the study of Scripture and prayer key components of our daily lives. However, we would be dishonoring God if we showed up to work, say, as a waiter, and all of your customers are waiting for their food, and your manager finds you in the back room reading your Bible. It would be dishonoring to God for you to say, hey, I'm doing something more important here. Leave me alone. No, it's, in, it's important and it is a witness for us to do our best job that we have been hired to do. At the same time, serving Christ by serving your boss means that everything that you do for your boss will be done as a Christian, and as R.C. Sproul liked to say, quorum Deo, before the face of God. I think it's important, I've, I've said this a few times in the past, if you already know this, just bear with me. Sometimes, and, and even I was told this growing up as a, as a young Christian, uh, sometimes it's presented to Christians that we ought to think of all of our responsibilities kind of in the form of a list, that God comes first, our family comes second, work comes third, 
And, you know, who knows, maybe if you're watching TV is 20th or something like that. You know, we have this list we carry around. And in one sense, that's true. But you see, I think we can warp it when we think of that way. I, I tend rather to see the Christian life as Christ at the hub of a wheel. That the Christian life essentially looks like a wheel, that, that Christ is at the center and that everything that we do in our lives are like a spoke in the wheel. They go out equally. Sometimes the thing that is most important for you to do is actually get rest and maybe sit and watch a TV show with your spouse. The Bible gives you permission to do that in books like Ecclesiastes. Enjoy a nice meal with your friends. It doesn't mean that you're not doing a good job because you're eating a meal rather than working 80 hours a week. If you think of it as a list, then when do you ever get around to enjoying something like shooting hoops with your kids? But if you see all of life as spokes on a wheel and Christ at the center, then everything that you do is done for Christ so that everything that you do is as a Christian. I remember <coughs> one of the jobs that I had of putting myself through college <clears throat> was valet parking cars at the Marriott waterfront in Annapolis. And I got hired to park cars. That was my job. Every once in a while to, uh, to take someone up to their room and uh, show them around the room and take their clothes and, and bags up on a bellhop. But for the most part, it was parking cars. And, and that was what I tried to do. I tried my best to show up on time, park cars well. Uh, it wasn't that complicated. Sometimes it was a little bit nerve-wracking if we had a huge wedding that would come in and we had to stack the cars 15 deep. But I didn't show up there to go in a corner and read my Bible. So I did, I parked cars, but I, I parked them at that time. I was especially growing in my faith and I had a real sense that I was here not only to park cars, but to be a witness for Christ. And there were many times when, when things were down that it was, wasn't very busy that I got into many conversations about the Lord with my fellow valets. They all knew that I was a Christian, but I didn't use that as an excuse to slough off on my work. And actually, it served me well one time when, when a man came and we were super busy. It was during uh, Annapolis Boat Show Week, and we had no room and he had come there in an expensive car to have a meal with his girlfriend. And I told him, hey, I can't park your car. I'm sorry, we don't have any room for you. And he got mad at me, and he drove off, and he cussed me out as he drove off. And he couldn't leave well enough alone. The next day, he called the office, and he told the manager, my manager, that he pulled up there and that I cussed him out. And that I told him uh, by cussing him out that he couldn't park here. Well, when I showed up later that day for work, my manager told me what happened. And he said that the second that he asked the man, could you describe this valet for me? And he described me. He not only got off the phone and laughed, but he told all the other valets, this guy just said that Max cussed him out. And all the other valets laughed. And he said, we knew right then and there that he was lying, that you couldn't have done that. So it paid off. <laughs> but we see here in verses 6 to 9 that the, these men conspire against Daniel apparently out of jealousy. So many sins 
in the Bible are committed out of jealousy. Notice two things about this plot that they come up with. First, apparently, once the king signs this law to trap Daniel, it cannot be revoked. I mean, we see this many times throughout this one passage, but but it's well known historically that the Medo-Persian laws, once signed, cannot be revoked even by the king that signs them. We see this in, for instance, the book of Esther. is very well made, uh, made clear, and we see this all throughout historical documents outside of Scripture. So they know that. They know that the king cannot regret his decision and somehow get rid of this law. Once he signs it, it's a done deal. Notice also, interestingly, that the law extends only 30 days. Think about how amazing that is. These men, these guys know that Daniel is so committed to his God that they only have to enforce this law for 30 days. That 30 days will be enough to trap Daniel. They know that Daniel is so committed to his God that he would rather die than stop praying to him. That's what they know about Daniel. Christian, what would your coworkers say about you? What would your neighbors or your friends, your classmates, would they say? Would they have no doubt that you live for Jesus? Not only that, but that you would be willing to die for Jesus. Loving Jesus more than your life is, at least in part, what Christianity is all about. Luke 14 Great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The fact that Darius here signs this document shows, I think conclusively, that he obviously, although he maybe has heard of Daniel's God, maybe he knows Daniel worships this God, he is not a believer in Yahweh. I mean, obviously, anyone that's going to sign a document saying, yeah, that makes sense, I'll have everybody worship me and only me for 30 days, uh, doesn't yet, hasn't yet fallen at the feet of the God of Scripture. Daniel has been a good witness for the Lord in, in the way that he has lived, but, but despite this clear witness to God, it, it has not impacted Darius in that way yet. And so God gives Daniel here a chance for an even greater witness. You see, one way of living as an ambassador in exile is obeying your boss for Jesus' sake. But you see, another way of living as an ambassador is sometimes disobeying your boss for Jesus' sake. See, See, with serving Yahweh as the hub of Daniel's wheel, he worked really hard for Darius. And yet, Daniel's co-workers knew that though he was fully committed to Darius, they knew he was ultimately committed to his God. 
That when push came to shove, if, if there was ever a time when Darius commanded him to do something that God forbids, or forbid him to do something that God commanded, Daniel would have to serve his God rather than Darius. They knew that. And they say that. Look, we're, we're not going to find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel made his faith so clear that his co-workers knew that his seemingly uncompromising allegiance to King Darius, someone that, that he has worked in almost infallibly for, someone that he has gone above and beyond for, that his, this allegiance to his king on earth would cease when it came up against his allegiance to his king in heaven. Is that, Christian, what your earthly boss or your teacher or your college professor knows about you? Do the people that you love and honor and serve and serve well know that your allegiance to them extends only so far, but that if it comes up against your ultimate allegiance to God, they will lose? I had, uh, once I got married um, and actually needed a job at that point. Uh, I, I was planning on, on heading off to seminary, but in the meantime, needed something to pay the bills. And a friend of mine who worked for Ryan Holmes uh, got me, I mean, this guy was doing really well, and he got me three interviews with, with guys that were really high up in the organization. And he told me that if you get in with this uh, position that I'm, I'm uh, putting a good name in for you for, if you, if you do well and you get in, you're going to make a lot of money. And so I interviewed with all three of these guys, and all three of these guys, uh, they asked me how I would work, uh, how committed I would be, uh, would I, what, do I, do I drink, do I, do I, will I come into to work stoned every day? All of these things, no, absolutely not, I, I, I want to work well for you, I want to do my best for you. Okay, so what do you think about working on Sundays? Because Sunday is one of our biggest days. You're going to work for Ryan Homes. You're going to sell homes for Ryan. People love to see homes on Sunday. That's when they're off work. I said, I can't do that. I at least can't do it from, you know, 8.30 in the morning to about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. If maybe you want me some Sundays after that, if you're really shorthanded, but for the most part... Uh, I can't work on Sundays. My friend called me after I didn't get the job and said, what happened? I mean, I, I gave this thing to you on a silver platter. I said, well, because my allegiance to you came up against my allegiance to God. I'm sorry you lost. But it was okay. The Lord provided me with a job where I didn't have to work on Sundays. See, our allegiance to the king on earth ceases when that king either commands something that our king in heaven forbids or forbids something that our king in heaven commands. We see this in, in Acts 4. The Sanhedrin, the, the supreme court of Israel, calls uh, Peter and John in and they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answers them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
You might be the Supreme Court, and in every other way we'll listen to you, but not if you tell us not to speak about Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were amazing employees, excellent servants of Nebuchadnezzar, but nevertheless, they disobeyed when he said, you must bow down and worship the golden idol. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, had opportunity, remember, to, to make all kinds of excuses to bow down to the idol. Remember, we talked about those. They, they could have said, well, you know, our, we're in such high position here. No doubt our service to, to our fellow exiles are going to be better off for, with us alive rather than being burned alive. Uh, maybe we can just bow down and, and not really worship in our hearts. Daniel had that opportunity too, didn't he? He had ample opportunity to, hey, what is prayer? Prayer is silent anyway. Prayer is in my heart and in my mind. I don't need to bow down. I can look like I'm not praying. I mean, my gosh, wouldn't it? Isn't it better if I'm not thrown to a den of lions? I mean, God's okay maybe with me not praying for 30 days, only 30 days. I mean, I'll go right back to it after that. But notice what Daniel does. Verse 10. Verse 10 is unbelievable. I mean, you, you would expect for the text to say something like, Daniel, not having heard about the new law, went and prayed. Or, or maybe Daniel, knowing that the document had been signed, hid away for 30 days. Or, or maybe even Daniel, hearing that the document had been signed went immediate to, immediately to Darius to, to argue his case against these men and, and tell him how he's not disobeying Darius, or, or maybe even immediately began praying out in the open three times a day in order to stick it to the man. But we don't hear that. Scripture says that when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows open in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and prayed three times a day and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Why did they know that this would work? Because if his co-workers knew anything about him, they knew one thing. They knew Daniel was a man of prayer. They knew that he did this every day, three times a day. Daniel's daily practice, praying three times a day, praying three times a day, this was not spurred on by this situation he found himself in. It wasn't the threat of going to the lion's den that drove him to his knees. This is, it's important for us to see this because so many of us wait until we are in a time of desperation before we, we begin to pray. I mentioned a couple weeks ago about 9-11. I said I was working for a newspaper when 9-11 happened. Remember after 9-11? Remember how full the churches were? We actually had a photo, a picture right on the front page of, of our newspaper of throngs of people running to the church in downtown Annapolis, kneeling on the steps, praying, begging God to do something. For about a month, the churches were packed. Where were all those people after a year? See, <clears throat> Daniel did not have the luxury of living a life devoid of prayer. Daniel was ripped away from his home at age 14. Daniel was stripped 
from Jerusalem, from the temple, from his family, from the sacrificial system, from everything that he knew, and he was hauled off and placed a thousand miles away surrounded by paganism. The only thing that Daniel had was prayer, and that's what he did. He didn't have a temple. He didn't have the Torah. He didn't have the prophets. He didn't have any of that. All he had was prayer. Christian, don't wait until tragedy strikes to pray. Make prayer a daily part of your life so that when it strikes, you can go to your Father as you had always done previously. I mean, ask yourself this. I ask myself, how many of you would even have a difficult time going 30 days without praying? I mean, would this have even trapped you? How many of you, if, how, how much uh, uh, would this dictate even alter your life? Notice two things. Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem. Why is Daniel doing this? Why is he praying toward Jerusalem? Was it some kind of uh, magic incantation? Did he think that there was some kind of, uh, you know, like lucky charm by, by praying toward Jerusalem? No. He, he didn't really believe like, well, God's over there, and I'm all the way over here, so I'll pray to him way over there somewhere. No, it says here in our text that, that he prayed and gave thanks before his God. If Daniel knew anything about God, I mean, we see all throughout the book of Daniel that he knew that God was the omnipresent and omnipotent God who reigned everywhere. He knew that, that the Lord was with him there in that room a thousand miles away in Babylon. But he prayed toward Jerusalem because that's the prayer that he heard he was supposed to pray. When King Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, and the temple was unveiled for everyone in all its glory, and animals were sacrificed beyond number, they couldn't be counted, and the glory of God descended and lit up the entire place, Solomon said this, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon knew that the temple couldn't hold God. But, but Solomon says, listen to the plea of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and you give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off, or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried, and they repent, and they pray toward the land to which you gave their fathers, and to the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And amazingly, that's the prayer that Daniel was praying. Our text doesn't say it here. But we do see in verse 11 that these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. These guys spied on Daniel, and they were right. He, he prayed. He prayed three times, and, and they didn't have to wait for 30 days. They found him right away, and they found him making petition and plea. What was his petition? What was his plea? 
Our text here, again, doesn't say, but, but we know what he prayed because Daniel 9 tells us. If you go forward to Daniel 9, Daniel talks about this time, this very time when this happened to him. And, it sa- and he says here, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we have rebelled, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, to us shame. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger turn away from your city and make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. O Lord, forgive. Unbelievable. I mean, what what we're, I guess, seeing here is that for 70 years, Every day, this must have been the prayer of Daniel. When Daniel was exiled at 14, he remembered why an exile would even take place because of the sin of the people of Israel. Now, we know he prayed for other things. We know he prayed, for instance, that God would give him the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But when Scripture says that he makes petition to God. His petition is not, Lord, get me out of this mess. His petition is not, Lord, why me? Or, Lord, please kill Darius for me. Or, Lord, please take revenge on those other two governors. His prayer instead is that God would forgive the sins of the people of Israel. He prayed the prayer that was modeled to him that day at the temple. Christian, our Lord, has given us a model prayer to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer. I always found it interesting, just as a side note, that when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray, he didn't say, actually, have you heard of the prayer of Jabez? Man, if you pray that every day, your life will be set. No, what did Jesus say? Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus taught his disciples a simple prayer that focused on who God is and who we are and who we are to live in light of that. Verses 12 to 15 shows us that Daniel's fate is sealed. There's nothing that the king can do. Once the law is put in, Despite his best efforts, he he works hard, as hard as he can to free Daniel, but the law is irrevocable. Notice, again, how these guys smear Daniel. They unbelievably, here he is about to be made prime minister, they go back to calling him one of the exiles in Judah. Uh, These guys are just smearing him in every way possible, and they get their way. Daniel is cast into the lion's den, which we will look at next week. But notice in verse 16 that all this time Daniel has been making his witness as an ambassador shown by the way he has lived. 
But his greatest witness was shown by the way that he was prepared to die. Look at verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, and the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I'm not sure if Darius had ever thought about Daniel's God before. All the great work that Daniel had done, all the ways that he had meticulously and and served him well, maybe all of the times Daniel mentioned his God. Never maybe had Darius ever said anything about this God, much less that, that this God would be able to deliver him until Daniel was willing to give up his life and thrown into the lion's den. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithfulness unto death was their greatest witness, so it was Daniel's. And so it was our Lord's 